Hey, everybody. It's Michelle, and I am completely cup runneth over with joy because today I get to announce that Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders is 100% done and in publication, and you can check out your copy on Amazon. And the best part, if that book moves you, if it grows your evidence-based triangle to to engage in interprofessional practice, to do the root cause analysis to why the child is presenting with the PFD, to then engage with the team to get that child to a point of healing so that the real growth can begin, then y'all check out speechtherapypd.com because they are gracious enough to entertain all of these amazing, joyful ideas. And they're currently carrying the book for 13.5 ASHA CEUs. So (sighs) thank you for being a part of the first bite journey that led to Chasing the Swallow. And be sure to check out speechtherapypd.com for the 13.5 ASHA CEUs that accompany it. Happy learning. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, Fed, Fun, and Functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and I guess lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy joy and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee by way of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. All right, y'all, we are back. And folks, we are one week, I think like a week and a half away from the International Pediatric Feeding Disorders Conference with Feeding Matters and to kind of 
get you in the groove for the ninth annual PFD conference. We have two amazing clinicians from New York, and they have joined Aaron and I to talk about all things messy play, pediatric feeding disorder, and the schools, and how you can also do this. And y'all, this today's episode was brainchild idea from our lovely Erin. Sometimes you go to ASHA conventions and you go to a class and you're like, oh, that one did not hit the mark. And then you go to a class and you're like, oh my gosh, this was phenomenal. And this is the one to take home with. And that was today. So because of, I guess, stars aligning, Aaron and Aaron made it to an 8 a.m. class at ASHA. Go, Aaron. And we have none other than Tony Ann Gambella Loftus. I'm hoping I said that right. Yes. Yeah. MSCCC SLP slash TSSLD, as well as Liza Bernabio. Did I do that right? Yes, that sounds good. Okay. Um, I teach swallowing and not articulation. <laughs> um, MSCCC-SLPT. SSLD. So, but before we get there, I have to pass the mic to Aaron. So Aaron, tell us what was, what was the aha moments for you, love? Well, I'm, I am glad I made it to an 8am course. I, well, when I read the description, I saw that both of y'all were trained in floor time, which really caught my eye because I've currently in my 202 course. So I'm like really diving into floor time in my mind, floor time and feeding makes so much sense together. And this was the first time I'd seen it talked about together. And so that really intrigued me. And I was like, these two will 100% be speaking my language. And you both were. And it was just beautiful to see how you utilize the principles of floor time to build that trust with feeding and how you also were able to manage it at times with like, more than one child with all these different individual differences. And I, and the way that you y'all explained it, I was like, we need them on the podcast. <laughs> That's amazing. Congratulations on taking, you know, 201 and 202 and starting your DIR floor time journey. I'm so yeah, glad I, to see. I signed up for 202 right after I finished 201. I was like, I should wait, but I'm not going to. So <laughs> That's amazing. Some people are ready right away to, to sort of continue on their practice. I feel like when we started in the model, I hate to say it, but like 10 years ago, um, there wasn't a ton of people out there doing floor time. And now you hear it more and more and more. And that's so exciting to hear that the world is starting to change. Yeah. I'm just really excited. I'm so glad you're taking the courses. Don't make me want to spend my money there, but I just got broke paying for spring soccer. So um, yeah. I have to recoup my <laughs> pennies for a minute. Yeah. <laughs> Well, we were lucky enough, the two of us work at the Rebecca School in New York City, um, and it is a DIR floor time all the time school. Which is um, amazing. I, wait, yeah, I mean, what? Amazing. I worked there for 10 years. Liza is still there. Yes, and you're 10. Yeah, and it's it's an incredible place. You know, to have a school that does floor time all the time is um, a really big gift to be able to sort of walk around and follow a child's lead when there are... 200 students is a, is a really hard feat and they do it so well. And they were able to, you know, train us throughout the time I was there. We took the DR courses why we were there, but it's really nice to be like immersed in that culture. You get such um, incredible experiences when you really 
have a group of like-minded people working together. Yeah, I think there's nine floor time trained therapists in South Carolina. So we're um, we're getting there. But why don't y'all tell us, uh, like our audience, a little bit about yourselves and how you got to, to where you are now? Sure. So my name is Tony Ann Loftus. I am was born and raised in Goldsboro, North Carolina. Um, I went attended Meredith College when I graduated from high school, and I really didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. Um, <laughs> and I explored lots of different options. I knew that I wanted to work with children. I knew I didn't want to be a classroom teacher. My sister's a classroom teacher, and I give her all the credit in the world. A really incredible job. It takes a really patient person, but it wasn't for me. And my mother was like, well... You know, oh, I've heard somebody who has a speech therapist. I don't know what they do, but like it could be a cool job. I started to explore it and applied to graduate school um, and then ended up going to Seton Hall University in South Orange, New Jersey and got my master's there. When I was in my clinical fellowship, I worked at an ABA school and it was a really hard transition for me you know, being a clinical fellow, being on my own, sort of figuring things out and then having to create discrete trials was really hard for me. You know, watching kids that didn't want to come to speech kind of be like picked up and brought to speech was really hard. Um, and a very good colleague, friend of mine, you know, we're still very close. I uh, was like, Hey, I was on an airplane and I was sitting next to this guy who runs this like kind of hippy dippy school in Manhattan. You should check them out. Um, turns out it was a Rebecca school. <laughs> it was the the, one of the owners of the Rebecca school that was sitting next to her. Um, and that's how I found DIR floor time. And I sort of like fell in love. I went for my interview at Rebecca school and no one was wearing shoes. <laughs> standing on the radiators. Wait, yeah. Nobody was wearing shoes? No, because of their sensory seeking, their preferences, their own individual differences. They were allowed to walk around with no shoes on if that's how they... That's amazing. It's amazing. It really is amazing. People are so patient and calm. And I was like, oh my gosh, they're in the hallway with no shoes. And you know, there's obviously safety limits. They can't walk out on the sidewalks of New York City without shoes. But <laughs> able to be in their classroom and feel like they can be themselves and be safe is is really incredible. And so when I saw that, you know, I was like, oh wow, this is like the place for me, I think. And I got lucky <laughs> and they offered me a job. Um, and I spent a long time there really appreciating all of like the trainings they offered, all of, you know, I took SOS feeding while I was there and like sort of incorporated that into floor time. I went through the entire DIR Institute while I was there, became a training leader for the Interdisciplinary Council on Developmental Learning you know, did Hannon more than words. And so they gave me lots of opportunities while I was there. And then, you know, the global pandemic hit and I was eight and a half months pregnant. <laughs> um, and it was really a hard time to be an educator. It was a hard time to be a mom. And I took a little bit of a break. Um, and now I'm running a private practice in lower Manhattan and bringing floor time to, you know, kids in that way. It's really incredible because I work with a lot of typically developing kids and they all take to floor time like a moth to a flame. It works for everybody. And it's so nice to see kids feel appreciated and kids feel passionate about things and 
for kids to feel heard. So it's been um, really cool to sort of take all that I've learned and, you know, sort of start my own thing and keep spreading like the good news and <laughs> of floor time out there and teaching parents how to, you know, get down and play with their kids and, and think about things in new ways. So that's my story. And you came into the picture, ta-da. Yes, and then then there was me. So my name is Liza Bernabio, and I am a native New Yorker. I was born and raised on Long Island. And I went to undergrad at the State University of New York at Geneseo, which is upstate. That's where my stepdad went. Oh, really? Mm-hmm, yeah. That's so funny. Yeah, so Gen- I feel like if you're from New York, you've heard yeah. of Geneseo, and everyone mm-hmm. else is like, what? <laughs> So I was similarly to Tony and I kind of went into school being like, I know I want to work with kids. Maybe I want to be a teacher. And then I was sort of like, I don't know if I want a whole classroom of kids. I don't know if that's really my thing. So my first semester of my freshman year, I took an intro to communication disorders course. And I was like, oh, I think this is it. I think this this feels right to me. I like the idea of working one-on-one or in small groups. And I was really fortunate because at the time, Geneseo um, offered us a lot of hands-on experience as undergrads, which was really rare, you know, having spoken with other people. So I did, they had an on-campus clinic that I participated in. I did my student teaching as an undergrad. So I felt like it, I was really lucky to kind of come out of that with all this experience before even starting graduate school. And then I went to graduate school at Adelphi University, which is on Long Island. And through there, I I had more on-campus experiences. And I did some of my clinical placements with developmentally disabled adults, which was kind of a a new area of practice for me, but I also really enjoyed it. And then I worked in a private practice for a couple of years and sort of decided that I was ready for a change. And I was like, I'm curious about being an SLP in a school. So I applied to a bunch of schools in New York City, and I ended up at Rebecca School, which I think was just like a wonderful twist of fate, um, because I really wasn't familiar with DIR floor time prior to learning about and working at Rebecca School. And I just feel like it was meant to be in so many ways. And when I started to learn this model, I was like, this this goes so well with what I know about speech and language development. And I honestly can't imagine working as a speech pathologist, not in this model, like the developmental piece just makes sense. Like there's just, it just fits. So now, yeah, I'm in my 10th year there, which is crazy. And similarly to what Tony Ann said, I've had so many incredible professional opportunities, also sort of completing those DIR courses and getting to now teach floor time to people and also just all the opportunities that we've had within our speech and language department to really have the freedom to try things. I feel like whenever we have an idea or something we want to try, we're always encouraged and told like, yeah, let's try it. Let's see. And I, I'm really grateful to kind of have those opportunities every day. And then Liza and I, like, obviously met at Rebecca School. That's where yes. <laughs> so it also brought us together, which I think is also really cool. I think we have, like, lots of like-minded ideas. Yeah. We travel well together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we've done a couple of ashes. Last, in 2020, our article was published, but we traveled to present the article that we wrote that went along with our ASHA presentation um, in Lon- to London, England. So we've 
you know, kind of circled the globe a little bit together. Michelle, Wait, why what is we the article? London? I'm just kidding. I mean, I'm trying to get you to Australia because Ooh. I need My honorary nieces and nephews. So like <laughs> game. I'm trying to marry her off to an Australian man. So if you're a speech pathologist listening in Australia, Aaron is single and my brother is not. Oh, bless. <laughs> There's also a lot, but, of great, a lot of great floor time happening in Australia. Tony, and I don't know if you can attest to that, but a lot of wonderful Australians have taken the DIR courses with us. Aaron, we could thrive. <laughs> you and I can have tiny babies. You'd have to bring it back to the States. I digress. Okay. Wait. Okay, tell us about the article. Like, what is it called? Where can we find it? And 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 tell us about it, please. So, I, Liza, I could probably attest this. Sometimes I have crazy ideas. <laughs> sure, I don't know what true. you're talking about. I don't have a business. I don't know what like you're talking about. Yeah. I always take them straight to Liza. She does. <laughs> I'm always like, okay. <laughs> exactly how she says it. She's like, okay, okay. Sometimes we're like, am I crazy? Or am I not crazy? So we were invited to speak at an international conference. It started out being in Russia (laughs) and it was in a time when like, it really wasn't a great time to go to Russia. I was looking for other things to sort of, you know, kind of expand on our knowledge. We were doing a lot of feeding therapy and a lot of sensory based stuff at school. And I was like, let's write an article. And Liza was like, Oh, Okay. And then we're also going to go like defend the article in London, England, and it's going to be great. It's going to be so fun. <laughs> and we went through several, you know, drafts. And the first draft was written. I hate to say it, but in a restaurant in um, where was that? Where were we last? We were like in Herald Square, and we left on the table. And I called the next day and I was like, we left like something really important. And I think Liza, didn't you say like they, they the person was reading it? Yeah. Cause yeah, they were like, oh yeah, we actually found that. We thought it was so interesting. So we were like, okay, this is a rough draft, but we're glad that someone thinks it's worth continuing. You you have to tell me there were pints had at that table. Oh, that there was night definitely, yes. Story. I think it was oysters and wine. <laughs> oh, <she's laughs> <really good. laughs> oh, Aaron, why did we not have dinner and drinks with them at Asha? We <laughs> found the perfect oyster and wine bar. <laughs> oh, man. All right, continue. Conti- All right, so we, we recover the journal, the proposed article from the... Night. We recovered it. It was the roughest draft written on some unlined paper. Um, and it was just sort of like our fresh ideas out. And it takes a really long time. I guess I didn't really like consider how long it takes to like write an article and how many peer reviews you go through each time. And, you know, everybody's going to have a different comment on it. So it finally got published in January of 2020. And it's in the World Academy of Science, Engineering, and Technology Journal. It's publications.wasdt.org. And then the name of our article is Food for Thought, Preparing the Brain to Eat New Foods Through Messy Play. And it essentially talks about our journey of how we found floor time and how we think about messy play and the brain and mirror neurons. And we did a lot of research to sort of support what we were already doing. And it's so amazing because it was like confirmation, right, Liza, that we were like doing the right thing. 
Yes. Once we saw the research and and just we're thinking about like, we we see this every day, like we know that it's working, but where's the research to support that? So I feel like it was an opportunity for us to kind of really dig deeper and kind of support what we kind of knew within our bones was working, but but doing a little bit more work to support that. Yeah. And, and like I said, we were both at Rebecca School at the time and they're very supportive of different kinds of research and starting different things. The speech department there is huge and our supervisor was very supportive and the department was very supportive. Uh, we had created a, a mealtime program, you know, as a department a couple years earlier. And so we, we had spent a lot of time thinking about mealtime and the importance. And I know it was really important for my family growing up. It's really important, you know, for Liza's. We both come from kind of big Italian families and it's yeah. like, that's how you like show love. You sit down and like mom makes dinner and like everybody gets together. Um, and so it was kind of an important topic for us as well. I'm not Italian. I'm Southern and we're a hot mess um, crock pot of all of the ingredients. <laughs> but a fair bit of Irish and Cherokee and Padawamic tribes. And um, it's it sounds fancy, but it's resulted in the fact that if I smile too hard, my cheeks hit the FaceTime button on my cell phone. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> randomly, that backfires at awkward times of the day. But I say this because mealtime is critical and like even for our family and as interesting as our upbringing was. But that's what I think unites all of humanity is who we break bread with, whether it be gluten-free bread or puree bread yeah. or, yeah. you know, TPN bread. But that's that's a uniting force for us. But, okay, so how let's, – let's take this into the therapy. So how do y'all kind – and I don't know if y'all want to go through developmental approach or like messy play and exploration of the affect brain development. I don't know which way y'all want to go. You know your craft, but yeah. walk us through. Yeah. I mean, I, I think starting with the developmental approach is kind of how, how we sort of start out with everything. So I know we, we talked about how we follow the DIR floor time model. And just, I guess, a little background on that because we're all familiar with it, but not everybody is. This was a model that was created by Dr. Stanley Greenspan. So it's a developmental approach that focuses on individual differences, and it's also a relationship-based model. And this sort of provides a foundational framework for understanding human development while placing a large importance on that social-emotional piece and how that impacts overall human development throughout the lifespan, really. So I think it's kind of important to think about that because this is the model that sort of guides all our treatment, including how we approach feeding. So I think that something that we talk a lot about at Rebecca School and something that Tony Ann and I were thinking a lot about was about the experiences that a lot of our kids that we were working with didn't get to have within their development um, due to various challenges. And how can we almost like go back in time a little bit and provide those experiences so I feel like an example that we talk about a lot was if a child never crawled, right? So it's like, oh, I know crawling is important, but that's like an OTPT thing. But then thinking about that crawling is also a child's first experience with different textures. So crawling from the carpet to the rug, um, the carpet is the rug, sorry, <laughs> from the carpet to the wood floor 
right? Or we bring a baby or different kinds of rugs, or you bring a baby outside and, you know, they all hate the grass initially because they're like, what is this? And thinking about their ability to explore different textures through crawling. So we've found that a lot of our kids that were on our caseloads never crawled. So this was something that could definitely be affecting their feeding development later on because they've had these sort of limited opportunities and exposures to different textures. So just really thinking about all milestones. So like, yes, we're speech therapists. We're obviously going to think about oral motor and feeding milestones, but also thinking about those gross motor milestones and just to have sort of a general understanding of those, focusing on where a child is with regards to those milestones helping us to figure out like what should we focus on developmentally there's a developmental sequence and we're not really so concerned with this child's chronological age you know where are they developmentally and how can we support them to continue moving up the developmental ladder mm-hmm. well and people asked a lot of questions i remember in y'all's lecture about okay well how do i have this conversation with parents that we're wanting them to play with purees And, you know, Michelle talks so much about explaining it in regards to like food age where, yeah, they have, you know, maybe they haven't made all these other developmental milestones. Maybe they have, and maybe feeding is the one area where they haven't had the ability to explore and develop in the way that a typically developing child would have. And we have to go back and you see a lot of kids that didn't crawl and, parents are like, oh, they didn't have to crawl. And you're like, well, th- see these other things that are happening. That's because of that. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, totally. And I also think it's like becoming more of a prevalence n- with kids that are have been affected by the pandemic. So, you know, everybody was home for a really long time. And a lot of people, I was a first time mom. I really didn't know like much about raising a child. <laughs> they like, you have a baby and they send you home in the, from the hospital and they're like, good luck. Like, yes, that's exactly it. And then you get peed <laughs> oh, on a lot. <laughs> oh, yes, I have a son. So yes. Lots of pee. And I mean, it was sort of so, so hard. I mean, I remember telling Liza like, oh, like, please come to the hospital, like be in the delivery room. Like I was like ready to have like, people around. And I, you know, we kind of like lost that opportunity. And a lot of people said, I sort of relied on social media and to like, and books that were probably outdated on how to like teach my kid how to eat and walk. So I feel like a lot of families now are like these missed milestones. I didn't realize what a big deal they were until like later on, you know, kids have sort of developed and now they're like, oh, wow. Like by not, by wiping their face every single time has and not allow them to get messy has caused a little bit of their picky eating. So I feel like a lot of, a lot of new kids are out or a lot of new clients out there now are, are really like experiencing a lot of missed steps. Um, and then it's sort of. I, I have a thought on that and you hit on something then the wiping their faces continually. One thing my grandmother was significant in my upbringing as a child right? Mm -hmm. And there's wisdom in the old ways. That's what she would always say. Mm -hmm. I mean, her dipping. Yes. But I do 
argue that her taking a spoonful of Vicks vapor rub that you put on your chest and your feet when you're sick and dipping it in sugar and then making us eat it, what? probably not wise. Oh, yeah. And then I was old enough to wow. read the label and it said, do not digest, call poison control. And she was like, it ain't killed you yet. And I was like, oh, yes, but, okay. but like, but okay. So not that made that one's debatable, but there is wisdom in the old ways. And, and I carry this twofold. One, our families are moving away. Like we don't live anywhere near our family. We're two states away and that might as well be on the other side of the earth when it comes to like vis- visiting our family, right? When you separate younger generations from older generations, there's a breakdown in that immediate village to help raise that newborn yes. child and care for the mother when she is at her weakest, most vulnerable state. Mm-hmm. and. And on the other side of that, we are also in a nation in a opioid and um, mental health crisis where we have younger and younger parents and even middle-aged parents that are falling subjective to addictions, pick your poison, we all send, but it's impacting their ability to raise their children. So we have grandparents that are raising their their grandbabies. I've got a great grandma that's raising a baby. And if that baby's great and if that baby's dirty, like she's going to wipe mm-hmm, the baby. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no, this is good. But they've hit that point in their life where we like things neat and orderly. Yes. Oh, yes. Right. I mean, that's sort of how I even grew up. You sit at the table and you don't get up until you're done eating. That's another thing with like the feeding piece, like you eat when you're hungry and you stop when your body feels full. And I feel like a lot of that has changed. I would say in the, like between our parents generation and and us is that, you know, you, you sort of stop. Kids don't have to eat everything off of their plate. They don't have to eat it. They don't have to like everything. And dessert was this like Oracle. That's a staple in my household. Dark chocolate is always in the fridge. And if it's not there, then I have, (laughs) but like things have definitely changed I want to say in the last 20 years in the last 10 years even of how like people view food and feeding even when my son was eating for the first time at my parents house in my high chair mind you there was no footrest and in the high chair that I used and my mom was like what is wrong with this I was like okay so first of all he's six months old he's not supported he was <laughs> nearly sideways on this on this high chair it was wood and he like there was no strap in piece and I was like oh my god this is like literally but this is what and it was lovely to be able to say like he ate in the high chair that I also used but it's completely unsafe <laughs> and completely unsupported. He survived the high chair that you used to use. That you weekend, survived. It was a weekend. It was totally fine. It brought her joy. But thinking about like all of those types of things that like I want to be different and we know to be different. She whipped out this book, my mother, that her like OB had given her when I was um, <laughs> when she was pregnant with me. And the things that they had said in that book were like, I'm not that old. So the things that they were writing in that book about like giving baby rice cereal, like why they were laying flat and like, oh, just like slight incline is all you need. And like, I just thought, oh my God, like what? What? 
it's it's a wonder. And that's what, you know, my mom says to me all the time, like, you're totally fine. And it's like, yes, but now we know better, so we're going to do better. Erin, <laughs> you say that all the freaking time. <laughs> like, it just, it blows my mind. And I'm not saying, like, you know, that they did anything wrong, but that's how they, like, you know, when Max was, my son Max was six months old, the, the pediatrician handed me a piece of paper that talked about purees and about like how to prepare food for the baby. And I looked him dead in the eye and I said, I'm a speech therapist. And he was like, okay. And I was like, I specialize in feeding. And he said, oh, and he like slowly yeah. took the paper out of my hands and put it back in the folder. And he said, that's outdated. And I looked at him and I said, well, why are you giving that out? Why are you giving that out? Like for free, I will write you a new piece. Mm-hmm. Right. That, you know, there's like so much more information out there. And there's so many great um, apps out there and so many great programs out there now that are like teaching different. So it makes me very, you know, happy and excited to see that too. Okay, now we all have a new task, and I heard everybody's brain go there. We're all like, we need to update that form. <laughs> it was it was like a Xerox copy. You know, I kind of wish I would have taken it just to like like have it as a reference, but it is so interesting. And like I'm in my mom group being like, you guys should wait. Don't do it. <laughs> Here's why. Here's all the research why you sort of have to, to wait. Babies' brains aren't developed at, at four months and, and there's no need for them to have solid foods. But uh, yeah, those, those forms do need updating. And I do know that there's like, you know, like I said, lots of programs out there that are trying to, to change, change the world. Feeding matters. Feeding matters. Hint, hint, mic drop. Come next week. <laughs> yo. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Okay. So walk me through messy play and how exploration of messy play can affect brain development. Oh, man, that's like a giant. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I guess with, with for us, there was so many thoughts. And we were kind of like, okay, like, let's sort of explore and see what's out there. And there's so many different research theories. And we felt like terms and things that we've heard thrown around. So one of the things that we were interested in was this like brain gut connection. Um, I feel like we've been hearing more and more about it over the past couple of years. I know so many of our students who were on our caseload who had a diagnosis of autism also had a lot of digestive and gut challenges. So that was sort of just like another piece to this whole feeding, the larger feeding piece. So we just kind of looked into that a little bit more and just learned a little bit more about this like physical and chemical connection between the gut and the brain and just how our brain identifies different tastes by ways of these signals. And that basically when these gustatory messages arrive to our brain, we naturally experience like pleasant or unpleasant feelings and memories. So all of us sort of tend to eat foods that bring us pleasure and avoid certain foods. And that's something that we'll talk to families a lot about. Like, we all have foods we don't like, right? Our goal isn't that your child likes everything. No one likes everything. And we learned a little bit more about uh, what a conditioned taste aversion is and that it is this survival mechanism that trains the body to avoid certain substances before they cause harm. So the example that I think Tony Ann and I use a lot because we read this was that, you know, if you once gagged on lima beans and that was sort of a traumatic experience for you, you probably don't 
want to eat lima beans anymore, right? And and I know, and maybe you remember it happening, and maybe you don't. So thinking about for a lot of our kids, like we don't know what their past feeding experiences have been like, right? So like it's not just like oh they're choosing not to eat this. Who knows the reason for that? And that these preferences for certain tastes like can be innate or they can be learned. So if they're learned, that could be due to the consequences of eating foods. So our natural response is to reject what we don't find pleasure in. And that can occur like immediately by sort of gagging or vomiting after you eat something. Or maybe it happens later once your body begins to digest food. But this study that we read just basically sort of supported that even one single bad experience with food can cause this extreme aversion. And we felt like that was really helpful information to know when working with kids who were really, really picky eaters and really resistant to, you know, even being around that kind of food. And I also think it's like matters like across the lifespan. So like this doesn't necessarily have to happen on their first introduction of lima beans. So like it could happen when they're a year old. It could happen when they're three or four years old. You know, think about adults. Like think about the last time you drank tequila. (laughs) Oh God, never. You don't do that. Exactly. So you don't do it again. So thinking about this, like in terms of like typically developing people will go through this sort of like condition taste aversion. Like it kind of happens to everybody. There are foods everybody avoids. So it's not so weird. So like by saying like, you know, you didn't like that and that's okay, you know, maybe you try it again to sort of see if like it's just this like one off, but like it's okay to say like I, my body is rejecting this and I don't want to eat it anymore. And then you have, I mean, you have the kiddos who it's not one experience, it's they have EOE and every experience with food is negative and you have to, I find I have to explain to parents, like we have to rebuild these neural pathways that were so negative for so long. And I have, I've had a, a few kiddos on my caseload that it's taken years and years to get the EOE diagnosis. And so then you're just really, really building trust and it may not look like progress on the outside. But every positive experience is progress. Like their brain is developing. We just can't see it yet. And we will eventually. Yeah. I was talking to a mom the other day too. I was like, we have to bring the joy back. And like, it's not going to, you know, that's sort of why we came up with this messy blade idea. It was like, you know, what if we brought the joy back to food without the pressure of eating it? What would that look like? Um, And it sort of gives... I've noticed over the past, you know, few months that like parents sort of have to go through like the same process in therapy of like letting go of being like, you should just try it. And here's a spoon and putting it in their mouth. And so like thinking about getting messy and, and sort of like joyfully playing with like an oobleck, which is like cornstarch and a liquid or playing with, you know, snow dough has been really big this week for me, um, which is marshmallow fluff and cornstarch. And it makes this like dough. Okay. Um, I will not I'm touch a, that. I'm so grossed out just by you describing that right now. <laughs> it's so interesting too because I have two extreme picky eaters right now and you know the parents are like, oh there is no way that they are gonna touch that. And I was yeah, like uh-huh, uh-huh. okay 
I hear you. If it's hard for you, you can like go into the other room too. Like, don't worry about it. And I want to tell you, both of them are covered in marshmallow fluff. <laughs> I've been kidding raw dough. I've had a kid try raw dough. Mom was like, he's never going to try that. And we made it into like, it was a cloud. He was like, he tried to eat the raw dough. And the thing I love about floor time and where that bridged a lot for me was that I have some of my kiddos that have more difficulty with engagement. Like this was so hard because I was like, if they want to engage, how are they going to sit at a table or even on the floor and eat with me? Like that's a foundational skill for feeding, but it gave me justification to work on that and to build that trust. And I was like, this is a missing piece that like, I feel like that's how a lot of feeding therapy can turn behavioral because you're, you're, you don't know how to get them to engage. And so then it becomes, that's the next move that some people go to because they just don't know what to do. Right. And I think that you bring up a great point too, just about like the sitting at the table piece, like, and I think every child, whether you're doing individual sessions or groups, like they're, they all have different goals. And I know for some of our kids, I'm like, my goal is that you can stay in the room while we look at this food. Like my, you know, like, and if, if that's, if that's something that you're able to do for one student, that might be the goal for another student. Maybe my goals are different and I, and I have different expectations, but I think helping, helping everyone that's involved to understand like, this is where we have to start. Cause like you spoke about the trust piece is, is huge. Also acknowledging that a lot of these kids have had really traumatic experiences around food Um, and something else that, we sort of looked into a little bit and think about all the time is that like fight, flight, freeze response, um, which is also part of um, Dr. Stephen Porges and the polyvagal theory, which is like a fascinating theory that's much more in depth than just that piece. But just like really- we had an episode on that. Oh, oh did you? We, we've we've been there. D- basically, first bite is a string of what? What are we? One hundred and eighty episodes in wow. on everything that has entertained our combined ADD, ADHD, <laughs> anxiety. <laughs> stress and what if we're angry about something we're gonna funnel it for good and put joy in the universe I love I love that too I feel like that's come full circle I love that like that's amazing that's yes. awesome also I feel like y'all are like the New York City versions of like Aaron and me and I'm <laughs> totally geeking the freak out down here because I'm like oh my god I love them so we're on yes, the same continue, page sorry. same thoughts. yeah no well then and then that's I think that's awesome that you've already spoken about this and and that people are familiar so just thinking about that like visceral response right so and I think that's something that um I've realized over the years is a really big part of our job is helping families and other people that are involved with these kids, these picky eaters to recognize that like, this is a real response, right? This is a visceral response. And this explains why we see these changes in regulation in food. And that's why this trust piece is so incredibly important. um, And that we're sensitive to that all the time, because I think, you know, generationally, like I'm sure the way that a lot of like you speaking about our parents and grandparents would respond to like, you're being dramatic. Like it's just a potato, you know, <laughs> like it's, but, but that's not necessarily how it, it could feel very different for someone who's had a negative experience. I agree. I feel like my 
my dad once like really didn't understand what I did. And he was like, Oh, I don't understand. Like, you know, that kid, he just got to eat. <laughs> he came once to Rebecca school and, you know, I like brought him on a tour and one of my students like brought him to like the different classrooms. It was like, here's where the gym is. And like did this tour. And by the end I found him in my office and he was just like, you are doing God's work. Like this, <laughs> this is what I would have hoped for you. And I thought, oh, this is like so amazing for you to like see that like these kids like really want to be a part of mealtime. They really want to eat. They really want to show people like how smart they are and how their individual differences make them unique. But it's so hard for them to express themselves or you know, to just join in and be in the same room as a big smell. Um, and that it's like an actual response in their body as opposed to like a choice. Um, and that reframe has helped so many people, I think. Hmm. Okay. I just have to ask because I feel like for me personally, the patients that I'm called to work with, um, these little ones, I go hand in hand in with an AAC device. And so I feel like I'm also, can we just agree that when you have a speech generating device and you're doing feeding therapy, this combination of mess and electronics is not for the faint of heart. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But how much of that do y'all see or do y'all, and this y'all, we are completely going away from the structured conversation (laughs) of the hour, but I just really, I genuinely want to know, like, because I feel like it's, it's such an amazing tool. And yes, I am 1000% totally in love with LAMP and Talk to Me Technologies and the, they're my go-to people, those two combos. I have to stretch and grow as a clinician to like branch out to different options. But like, once you go LAMP, you can't go back. It's just amazing. And my concern is am I like, or there's more, right? Like y'all do this too, right? (laughs) Help. Yeah. I, I actually, I definitely have several kids on my caseload right now that have AAC devices that are present and a part of our, our messy play feeding sessions. And I, I think that's been a learning curve for me personally as a clinician, because I feel like it's become so much more common really very recently. And I think, yeah, I, I think there's so many pieces to it. And one of the things that I remind myself and the other colleagues when we're working with the kids too, is that these AAC devices are incredible and it's like such an amazing tool. And I will typically like program them prior to the session so that, you know, it's related to the food and the activity, what we're doing. And it, and the kids amaze me every time with how they're able to sort of utilize this and in conjunction with the activity and what we're doing. But the floor time piece of that too, for me is like, okay, we're still doing DIR floor time. We're still going to honor all the other ways they're communicating, you know, and when they're in the midst of this activity, I'm going to accept every way they're communicating. And I I definitely, I, I understand and I agree with you. I feel like some of those feeding sessions are in conjunction with AAC are some of my most challenging moments of the day. Because <laughs> I'm just like, there's so many things. Where does my focus go? <laughs> I, like, I, I love it from like the emotions perspective. Like, yes. I'm, like that's where, like when I have, I feel, and then, you know, we're, we're signing, like, again, total communication approach, reading the cues, but like, and I don't know floor time. I'm 
Aaron, as soon as my pennies are together and word <laughs> on, but like, for me, I have seen that's where they go to, or when we're like describing the foods, if it's almost like sometimes adding the stress of presenting the challenge food, if I give them that additional tool to convey their emotions, their feelings, their adjectives about it, it, it's like, it's, it's like it unlocks a thing that I couldn't tap into before. Yes. But then it gets really sticky and it's complicated. It does. So like, oh, and, is, and even just the, the ability, I know with some of my kids to say like, I like it or I don't like it, you know, and just giving them that, that voice and opportunity to be like, you don't have to like it. Like you can tell me it's gross, <laughs> you know, like you, that's fine. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. It's, I think that's definitely been, I know that's been a learning curve for me, but it is really just an incredible tool that we're able to kind of incorporate into these kinds of sessions too. Well, I have a lot of kiddos who don't, who like just having it there is beneficial. Yes. They feel, they feel safe with it. And I, and this is a conversation for another day, another podcast, but just recognizing however that child wants to use it like you were saying you know however they want to use it, however they feel comfortable I mean I have a kiddo that will go to a page to just find the category and he'll scan it because he has is hyperlexic and is and he, it like helps him get his gain his inventory of what we're talking about almost which is really interesting but um that's just a sidebar but I also yeah think floor time kind of gives you to the opportunity to say like if you don't want to use that you don't have mm-hmm. to like thinking about like developmentally, like if they are dropping down developmentally and becoming dysregulated because a new food comes out, yep. that is not a time to ask a question. No. <laughs> you not like that? Well, no kidding. Yeah, you know what right. I mean? Like yeah. thinking about the developmental model of like, okay, like I really want to get them regulated. Like what other sensory supports can I give them? Like thinking about seating and all that kind of stuff. And now I'm going to get them engaged. I'm going to have them open and close simple circles of communication, solve a problem. And now they might be ready to say like, what do you think? And like thinking about, you know, being more mindful of what we are asking while using that AAC and reading their body cues and teaching them to read other people's body cues and affect, um, I think is super important, um, you know, within AAC, but also within feeding as well. And I love that you say that because I think I get this question from a lot of younger. Th- I mean, I'm a young therapist, so younger therapist is really like. But, <laughs> no, you're a complete total bad. You know but, what? I can't say. But, um, but, but like, yes, but you're like, phenomenal. I don't know what to do with regulation. I don't know, and they and it's been a topic recently where they're like, "Well, where's my, where's the scope of practice in regards to sensory or regulation?" And I'm like, there is none. Like that's a part of a kid will not learn language if they're not regulated. Just because OTs got better education on it doesn't mean that they own it and that it that we it's not an important part of what we're doing and that's where like floor time also really came into that because they I mean and I remember someone asked me the other day they're like he, whenever he's frustrated he just yells help he doesn't say help I want this and I was like oh my god when your foot is stuck in the door are you gonna say help my foot's stuck no you're just <laughs> right. like help you no. I need help. no say right. it loud for the people in the back though you know right. like <laughs> and I think that's one area too. We're really lucky at Rebecca School that we really work within this interdisciplinary model, which you know that collaboration piece within floor time. So we're very lucky that we have access to OTs. But you're absolutely right that like 
these things don't happen with like speech and language development doesn't happen in a vacuum, right? Separate from like sensory processing and all of that. And I think, I mean, in general, but also specifically with regards to feeding. Okay. So I'm just going to say this because I'm having a moment and this is not going to be well received by all. And this is okay. But sometimes, sometimes I think that if we're going to discuss a topic and lecture a topic and have our students exposed to a topic, then we need to ensure that we're practicing in some way within that topic, right? Because it's really hard for me, and I had killer professors coming coming along, right? Like I am well aware that my education was freaking phenomenal, but I also had instructors that were active practitioners, right? So that research to practice piece was key. And I feel like a lot of our academic colleagues, their hands are tied because they're so they have to get grants, they have to publish in order to keep their jobs, right? But because of that, they don't get that opportunity to synthesize the information into into clinical experiences. And so when we're teaching a theory, there's that breakdown and disconnect. And the academic colleagues that I am drawn to, the ones that I'm like in all of are the ones that are doing research to practice in their own right in their like Monday through Friday, because they just, yes, they're researching it, but they're automatically implementing it and then talking about it. So that like those of us that are in the trenches Monday through Friday and or Saturday and Sunday, because you know, overtime. Um, um, but that's just, I don't know. I feel like I am fearful that money has driven our academic programs so far one way that we're raising a generation of clinicians that aren't getting that synthesis. That's just a deep thought. I should not record at 730 at night after a long day. (laughs) Sorry, folks. I'm in my fields. I sort of see what you're saying. I feel like, you know, when I went to graduate school, there wasn't, we didn't have a clinic at Seton Hall. So like, you know, there wasn't really like a lot of hands-on and, and video of watching something that happened recently. You know, that's what I love about DIR floor time and about ICDL, the Interdisciplinary Council on Developmental Learning, because they have these great videos of Dr. Stanley Greenspan a long time ago doing the work, but there's lots of updated stuff of people doing the work right now. You know what I mean? Lots of great videos of like people, like, like you said, like in the trenches, like doing the work. We're also teaching the coursework. Yeah. So you also have to watch yourself doing therapy, and that was a whole new thing. I never I thought I would have to. It's the worst, right? Yeah. It's the worst. It's the absolute worst. I go back and like think about my original video that I presented for a 201 and thought, <laughs> that's terrible. And I remember the first week of school at Rebecca, a lovely woman named Elizabeth Guzman came to my office with a camera, and she says, I'm going to videotape you now. And I thought, oh, my God. For what? <laughs> and now I think back like, oh, wow, you paid me to do that. <laughs> um, yeah. The first year, that was really le- a huge learning curve. But it's just like so nice to sort of see that like that, you know, the people that are teaching floor time are, are practicing it. 
and sort of like are immersed in it and like jump in to still help and support you. Even though, you know, like I'm always learning. Every time I teach a course, I learn something different from my co-teacher and, and from watching other people's videos. And even culturally, like, like Liza said, we have people from Australia. Right now I have somebody from Qatar in one of my courses, um, Egypt. I have a London, England. So it's like kind of nice to see like what people are doing all over the world and other cultures and then like sort of bringing that back into practice. It's, it's really cool to see. And to learn about yourself, like yeah. it makes you reflect on your own therapeutic sense of self and your presence, which I don't feel like we got, I mean, I'm just speaking for my own program. We got enough of to really look in a session and be like, where was I? And it's okay. We're human. Yes. Like this week has been a week where I've been like, I can't give a hundred percent. Like my, I I'm trying, but my 50, 70, wherever I am is what I can give. And I have to accept that. But to, to realize that you play a role and it's not just what did that kid do today? It's, mm, did I do something different? Did I have an energy that they picked up on? Because our, the children we work with can sense it way better than we can most of the time. And it's made yeah, it's made me learn a lot about myself. Yes. One of my favorite parts about the DIR floor type courses is when you're asked to kind of assess your own functional, emotional developmental <laughs> capacities and like your own individual differences. And I feel like it was like, wow, I'm way too old to just be realizing like, I'm really sensitive to auditory input and that just regulates, you know, like, but, but it's like just being given the opportunity and just having someone like ask you like, oh, like how are it's, you know, how does this affect you? Or like what dysregulates you? What makes you feel calm? I feel like it puts you in this headspace to really have a better understanding of like what the clients you're working with are experiencing, you know, and, and the same thing, it's realistic to think like, I'm not going to be my best self every single day. And that could affect, you know, what I'm able to give in a therapy session. But just having that awareness, I think, is huge. I couldn't agree more. And I also feel like, why is this like, why are we just talking about this now in like 2022? Like, why is this just becoming a thing about listening to ourselves and listening to our kids? Like, that blows my mind. Because too. matriarchs are slowly taking over the world and it's about it's bloody freaking time. Let's and hope, be- yes. <laughs> yes. And because of that, it's okay to talk about our emotions and self-regulation and where we are, but it has taken. So for women in the room, no offense, dudes, um, (laughs) we can do this. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's nice to see like the world is starting, starting to change and thinking about like things in new ways is, is really, really important. I, yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's like, could really like take it to, to so many new levels, but yeah. I'm very grateful that it's happening. <laughs> yes. All right. We're going to go over by like four or five minutes. Is that okay, ladies? Yeah, like, yeah can, totally. Can we, okay. All right. Because I have to, <laughs> I do have to stick to the outlined outcomes <laughs> for the learner. Oh, yeah, but, yeah. Um, okay. So on that note, with respect to doing this in the schools, how can we, and, and um, background, we've had um, Kristen West on. Um, a couple of times. I don't know if y'all know Kristen West. She's with um, Edinburgh University and she's one of the VPs. I'm going to butcher this, Kristen, on um, the Dysphagia Outreach Project. Um, their advocates are on their board. Um, we love Kristen. Um, um, also, Scott, hi, that's her husband, um, and who's also an SLP, adult SLP. But um, 
we've talked about um, legal cases and like why we should be treating PFD in the schools. And like, so we have set the stage for all of that. But how do y'all go about engaging and feeding in the public schools? Um, not the public schools. With res- or not the public schools, but in the schools. Because <laughs> y'all school is kind of like. In general. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. But in schools in general. How, how do y'all set that up and then assist with carryover versus like going into their homes and doing it? Like, what's the differences? Like, dislikes? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I mean, I think that we definitely have students who have individual feeding goals, right? And like, we'll see them during a meal time or a snack time to sort of carry out their like specific oral motor feeding goals. In terms of the groups, every therapist, every speech therapist within our department kind of runs their groups a little bit differently. But generally speaking, we sort of lead these peer groups with the focus being just on this like sensory play and exploration of food. We have a different community food each month. So we focus on sort of exploring that one food and however many different mediums for a full month. So in September, we'll do apples. I think in January, we did oranges. This month, we're actually exploring chickpeas. So sort of just having that food available and choosing to explore it in, you know, all the different ways that you can. Thinking about kind of how we spoke a little bit before, just how the goal for every child might look different, right? So for some of the kids, I just want you to share space. Some of you, maybe I I really, my goal is for you to sort of sit at the table and share attention. Explore the food through touch. If some kids may only feel comfortable doing that, if the food is in a plastic bag or if they can wear gloves or if they can touch it with a spoon. And then for some of the kids, they're really able to smell it, to taste it, to, to explore it in all different ways. And Our groups are typically, especially in the beginning, just really not focused on like making or producing something, but more about allowing the kids to explore and be present without expectations, right? So it's like the goal is like we're just here and you're touching it or you're smelling it or you're watching your peers explore it. And that's that's all we want. And then I think it's also an opportunity, right? Because we are speech therapists, like we're still targeting other speech and language goals. We don't need to use a lot of verbal language to participate. You don't need to use any verbal language and they can sort of reference their peers through their eye gaze, through their body proximity. They're able to sort of share attention and engage. And, you know, they are able to take turns and comment and follow directions if we choose to sort of follow a more structured recipe. But that's not necessarily the goal, and and that's not our expectation. And there's no right or wrong way to participate, which I think really helps build the self-esteem for so many of our kids and kind of gives them just positive peer relationships and also positive experiences around food, which a lot of them just haven't had a lot of in the past. And then I also, too, like want to acknowledge that like Liza and I like didn't invent this. No. We didn't like come up with the ideas. There's so many like incredible coursework things that we have taken. SOS approach to feeding was like a really big one. Yeah. About, it's like, a wonderful course. We do steps that take the food and like it's sort of, you know, we've just taken a lot of a little piece of this and a little piece of that here and there along the way and like developed kind of what worked for us. 
And I think like the biggest piece of figuring out how it works in the school is like figuring out what works for the individual child and then what works for the group as well. So like by looking at kids individually, that has been like such a change as opposed to like, oh, like everybody's expected to come sit down at the table. It's like, well, the expectations are different for kids typically developing or, or neurodivergent where, wherever they are. And so I want to just sort of like acknowledge we've done a bunch of different trainings um, <laughs> to sort of like come to this conclusion. And floor time, I think, was kind of like the biggest one that sort of like encouraged us to try new things. It made me think of the Sir Isaac. No, it was a Sir Isaac Newton. If I have seen farther than others, it's because I stood on the shoulders of giants. But we need people to take all the different courses to like piecemeal together current evidence-based practice and then propel it, right? And that's yeah. what y'all are yeah. doing. So yay, Sir Isaac. <laughs> he's, he's one of my favorite astrophysicists. So huh. <laughs> the fact that you have a favorite astrophysicist still just so- <laughs> I have three. So like I have a couple, but they're like, he's in my top three. (laughs) Yeah, this is, I'm not normal. (laughs) There is a thing. Everyone has passions, you know? Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. But like string theory, if y'all, somebody else stay up at night and also ring that or read that anyways. Well, no, I'm also just the, the company I work for has a lot of things in the works and I'm like, okay have a lot of ideas. Yes, right? Uh-huh. And it's sort of like kind of why I started my practice because I was like, my head is filled with all these ideas. Yep. How do I sort of like make it all work? Mm-hmm. And so it's it's sort of been this like crazy thing to watch things come to fruitation and things come together. But it's really cool to sort of see parents are like very open to new ways of thinking and it's been really cool. Okay. So I know people are going to have a ton of questions because we're talking about floor time and yeah, a totally different approach to everything. to working with feeding therapy to everything. <laughs> yes, everything every time. Like, oh my god, all the pennies. But <laughs> but if they want to reach you, can you start with please tell us again the name of the research article and where they can find it. Yes. So it is the World Academy of Science and Engineering and Technology. The abbreviation is WASET, W-A-S-E-T. So publications.wasset.org. I've Google searched it to like find it before. So if you Google search food for thought, preparing the brain to eat new foods through messy play, and then W-A-S-E-T, it will come up. And the full PDF version is located at the bottom. Okay. And if folks want to reach you directly, how do they do that? Also, where can they find you in social media? Lay it out there, ladies. So the name of my practice is Seaport Speech and Feeding. Um, You can find me on Instagram. I am the downtown speech mom with underscores. And if you go to seaportspeech.com, there's an inquiry page. So if people have questions, I'm more than happy to sort of answer them through that. And the email is info at seaportspeechandfeeding.com. And you can reach me at my email is lbernabio, B-E-R-N-A-B-E-O at gmail.com. Okay. Well, and you guys have, I have it on good authority. You're also coming out on a podcast with Speaking of Semantics. Is that correct? Yes. Tony Ann is. Yes. Yeah. I was recently talking to Sam about what it was like to start a 
practice more full-time during a pandemic (laughs) and what that was like. And she's doing amazing work inspiring graduate students and people thinking about going to graduate school for speech language pathology. Excellent. Excellent. See? Spread joy, people. Spread joy. (laughs) I love it. Okay. Well, Erin, I am so glad that you made it to an 8 a.m. lecture at ASHA because (laughs) (laughs) we always get those like great times. I'll never forget our first in Denver. We were pumped and we were at 8 a.m. with the time change. Remember, Liza? Yeah, it was like 8 a.m. on a Saturday, which we may have been this time too, but it was just, yeah. It was a giant ballroom of people and... Oh, man. Yes. Dude, my very first ASHA, I got the 5.30 on a Saturday slot. And I was like, and one of my my friends was like, who'd you piss off? I was like, I have no (laughs) idea. (laughs) Folks, if you're listening, as always, check us out on First Bite Podcast on Instagram. Be sure to check us out on First Bite Facebook page. We love it when you tag into Apple Podcasts and hit us up with five stars and a review. Please be sure to join us next week at the ninth annual International Pediatric Feeding Conference. If you haven't registered yet, myself and Kyler Romeo, OTR extraordinaire and board member with uh, Feeding Matters, her and I are going to host the pre-conference on Wednesday and talking all about placing the caregiver first and foremost in the patient's care. I think it's safe to say for the four ladies on this episode today that that is key. Mm -hmm. And I would love it if y'all could come. And last but not least, be sure to check out my book, which at the end of next month is coming up on a one-year anniversary, Chasing Mm -hmm. the Swallow Truth, Science, Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders. And it is also eligible for 13 and a half hours of ASHA continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. So everybody that's listening, wow, that's a mouthful. Thank you for (laughs) hanging in to the final seconds. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Hey! 
right. So it's Michelle Dawson here, and I need to lay out my disclosure statements. So uh, if you ever wondered how bad my ADD, ADHD, and lack of sleep Monday through Monday actually is, well, here you go. These are my non-financial disclosure statements. I volunteer with Feeding Matters. I'm a former treasurer with the Council of State Association Presidents. I'm a past president with the South Carolina Speech Language Hearing Association. I am a current member of both ASHA and SCISHA. And for this year, for 2021, I volunteered for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2021 convention. My financial disclosures. All right. So I receive compensation for first bite presentations, as well as talking teletherapy and understanding dysphagia from speechtherapypd.com. I also receive royalties from speechtherapypd.com for ongoing webinars that I have on their website, as well as compensation from PESI Incorporate for a lecture course that a webinar that I have on their website as well. I am coordinator for clinical education and clinical assistant professor for the Masters of Speech Language Pathology program at Francis Marion University in Florence, South Carolina, for which I receive an annual salary. I also receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders that I self-published and is available on Amazon. And I do receive royalties from the accompanying 13 and a half hour CEU for the book from speechtherapypd.com. So yeah, I stay pretty busy, but those are my financial and non-financial disclosures. If you ever have any questions, please feel free to reach out. All right. Thanks y'all. Bye.